Well, hello there. You've downloaded, or possibly are streaming, but anyway, certainly not hearing on air, this week's Culture File Weekly. And that's because on air on RTE Lyric FM this Saturday, it's the Culture File Debate, where myself and the panel will be digging into not knowing in all its flavours, from how artists employ not knowing to what not knowing could mean for the future of all our institutions. Meanwhile, here in the privacy of your pod, we have a regular Culture File Weekly with Cleona Ryan's orchestral podcast, Bittersweet Symphony, the rise of ultra-fast fashion giant Sheehan and Irish National Opera's touring production of Bajazette. But we begin this time with Jennifer Walsh, who spent recent times watching the hands and the body language of younger relatives, in which she's detecting an unexpected choreographic influence. Emojis. This is Jennifer Walsh's Things Know Things. Over the last few weeks, I noticed the kids have developed a new hand gesture, employed effusively on the playground, the sports field and the school bus. This hand gesture is not just local to Roscommon. I personally have seen 10-year-olds doing it as far away as Newtown Forbes. It's gone viral. It's a sort of a strange hand gesture. The kids hold a hand close to their face, dangling it there as if in anticipation of a completely rubbish two-limp handshake. The dancers I know might say that from a physical standpoint, this gesture is in a different performative mode to the standard repertoire of, you know, rude hand gestures we're all familiar with. The hand is sort of listless and vague, rather than punchy and defiant. And what does it mean? Who knows? The kids say it means nothing. The kids hint it might be something unspecifiedly rude, but just as likely the playground omerta is in effect and they're not telling us anything. Finally, one unnamed source gives us our only intel. That this hand gesture is based, curiously enough, on the handshake emoji. Watching new hand gestures emerge is always fun, but the idea of a hand gesture based on an emoji is particularly interesting because, well, emoji already are gestures, or at least pictorial representations of gestures. Linguists Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gawne, hosts of the excellent podcast Lingthusiasm, have written about how emojis are a unique form of written language – because they substitute for actual physical communication. They function as the gestures, the facial and hand expressions, which our in-person conversations are so rich with. You use a laughing face emoji because it's a way of showing someone what you're doing as you read the message on your phone. You use an eye roll emoji to indicate what your face would actually be doing if you were given the news in person instead of via text. What's fascinating about language is how it evolves. And this weird, physical, virtual, physical dance of a handshake made into an emoji of a handshake, made back into this hand gesture the kids are doing at the back of the school bus, this seems very much of this moment. 
showing us yet again how blurry the boundaries between our offline and online worlds are and the possibility for play. I think of this as I ask my niece whether she wants pasta for dinner and she turns to me saying, I don't know, very deliberately drawing her elbows into her sides and contorting her hands so that her palms face the ceiling, enacting the shrug emoji with great precision. In that moment, I could almost swear she's wearing a little purple jumper, just like the emoji in WhatsApp. Jennifer Walsh's Things Know Things there. And Jennifer was our special guest on the Culture File Weekly. Check out that interview on the Lyrics site. Now, the bittersweet symphony of life as a working musician. In her pandemic pause, with gigs a distant memory, violinist Cleana Ryan decided to join the ranks of podcasters. She knew her many musical friends and colleagues were also at home and decided to ring around, not just to see how they were adjusting, but to talk about all the things good professional musicians do their best not to talk about in the struggle to make a life in music. She reports now on what she discovered recording that podcast, Bittersweet Symphony. It was a very important dating month for me. It was the best and worst year of my life. I'm Cleana Ryan, a violinist and member of the Irish Chamber Orchestra. I was five when I began playing music. I was competing by the age of seven and touring globally while still in school. As a teenager, I left Ireland behind for London and then America. Since I was a child, music was my identity, my means of understanding myself and the world, my social life and later my bread and butter. Sometimes I struggled financially, sometimes I was fine but I rarely felt secure. I did feel full of love for the extraordinary gift of music making. There is nothing unique about me or my story. This is what makes a musician. On March 12th, 2020, I was sent home from rehearsal and it was months before I played with and for others. In spring of 21, an idea began to take shape. I reached out to fellow musicians to ask if they would go on a journey with me, a journey of memory recovery, of documentation, and of sharing openly who we are and what we have been through. As a community, we don't have these conversations, instead presenting as strong, reliable and consistent. So this was a brave step for the contributors to take. Together, we created an audio time capsule and in it we placed the bitter, the sweet and the bittersweet of this period to document what we have learned and what we choose to never forget. So what were people's lives like before March 2020? 
I think I was feeling a bit lost, traveling way too much, feeling really unfulfilled. My back was bad, so I was in a, I was very sore in work. Being feeling really run down and feeling really ill and exhausted. And what of the sudden shock of stopping? And I just went, but I, I need to play some music. Who am I without my violin? I stopped playing. I didn't play from March until August. I did not touch the bass at all. The rhythm of practice is a big part of your day. And when you take that away, it did feel like, what am I to do with myself? But what was horrifying about it is that everything was in there and then everything was scribbled out. My reaction to that was to stop playing completely. And I had the neighbours asking me if I would open the window and play concerts for them. And, and I just had to let them know that I was not going to be doing that for a bit. What were people's emotions in these first few weeks? I think loneliness, especially in the night times. That was, I found that kind of very hard to cope with. I wasn't afraid to die myself but I was afraid for other people, for my family. I think I forgot the sort of paralysing fear of it. In the midst of this crisis, there was also so much time, freedom and an explosion of creativity. Like, I finally gave myself a bit of space to, like, allow some creativity to enter. Honestly, I, I think it redirected my life in the best possible way. Well, for a start, I had time for my children. I had time to be with them and to really tune in. I felt like I'd never have this kind of time again. And that also I hadn't had it since I was like, before I started learning, basically. Some rediscovered a sense of home while for others, homeland and family were totally out of reach. I now understand what it means to have a home. Like, and when I lost my mum, like, I, I lost that sense of home. Not being able to go back to Wales, that was hard. So, um, and my mum, my sister, you know. Oh. <laughs> the Welsh word is hiraith, which kind of means longing. Okay. And that's what it was. It just hits me, you know, not to see my, my family and my country, you know. When we finally did return to work, it was strange and challenging. I was doing my favourite thing in my favourite place, but it was so weird. One of the hardest things I found in a concert was there was no applause. I didn't realise how much I needed that and how much music was part of my life and or how important it was. And what about going forward? I'm using the word no more than ever before. Okay. If I'm offered work on a free day, I don't have to take it just because it's free. Maybe you really need those couple of days to just live your life and like see your family. What has this process of reflection meant to us? To look back on it, it's very emotional, but good, really good as well, because so much good came out of it. You know, it's just really important, but also really productive and really cathartic for us to think about what happened to us and around us and, and what we felt and how we reacted. It's great to document it all like that. It's nice to, to tell the truth about it all. My hope is that it breaks down walls of silence and that our community find understanding, solace and empathy in these conversations. For those that aren't musicians, I hope they discover something about who we are and how we have been shaped by our experience since childhood. We dress in elegant gowns and tails 
but go in and out a different door. We are the people that play in the concert halls. The same people that play at your weddings and funerals. That teach your children. That play on the films and TV that you watch. And we are there in the shadows, swaying and playing along with your favourite band. Katrina Ryan on Pandemic Pausing, and the voices you heard were Katrina Frost Percussion, Esalt Cooper Stockdale Cello, Mark Jenkins Double Bass, Eva Burke Cello, Elizabeth McLaren Violin, Christopher Neary Bass Trombone, Catherine Hunker Violin, and Cormac O'Hadon French Horn. Bittersweet Symphony is available in all the good podcast places. And next on this podcast-only edition of the Culture File Weekly, the apparently irresistible rise of Chinese AI fashion giant Xi'an. Xi'an's origins are as an online wedding dress merchant, but the company has since grown into a global power in ultra-fast fashion, pushing out new designs to the mostly Gen Z users of its app with a speed that makes merely fast fashion incumbents like Zara and H&M look lumbering. Fashion researcher and blogger Amelia O'Mahony-Brady helped Culturefile unpack. Even for the people who don't know what Xi'an is, the vast majority of people are familiar with what Zara is, what H&M is, these sort of quote-unquote traditional fast fashion retailers, even though Zara has only been operating since the 1990s, that have been sort of pioneering in creating faster supply chains, now turning products around from design to sales in a matter of three weeks. Xi'an is basically a much more aggressive, souped-up version of these fast fashion retailers where rather than take three weeks to take a product from design to sales, they can achieve the same thing in about five to seven days. And it uploads between 700 to 1,000 items online each day, which even relative to some of the slightly faster fast fashion brands such as Boohoo and Fashion Nova... Um, They upload maybe 300 items a day, so there really is no one competing with this scale and, and pace of production at this point in time. How are they able to produce so many designs so quickly? Well, it's it's very reliant upon uh, this remarkable AI engine that it's now been called real-time retail and real-time fashion retail, whereby they use this uh, incredibly advanced AI engine that pulls real-time consumer data from search engines, social media platforms and competitor websites to design incredibly quickly and to really capture what's fashionable right at this moment. I think also they've, given that they are a, a Chinese retailer, they've really capitalized upon Um, the manufacturing prowess that China has exhibited over the past number of years or decades. So, um, yeah, it's a very impressive operation, but environmentally speaking, a very dangerous one at that also. There's kind of two aspects to it. One we've been touching on there is they got their, they they kind of refined their um, production pipeline. But the other thing that uh, you kind of hinted at earlier is that they use uh, data analytics and AI very firmly to drive what clothes they're going to produce, what items they're going to produce. Well, I mean, I think, again, going back to that earlier point of about 700 to 1,000 items being uploaded on site per day, I mean, <laughs> as far as, as 
I'm aware, it would simply not be humanly possible to engineer so many original designs in such a tight time frame with a normal, you know, design team composed of humans. So, yes, they are really reliant upon this AI as sort of their central engine in order to be able to determine trends, also to, to preempt consumer demand as well. And it's a very malleable system, which means that, you know, obviously everything's happening at an incredibly fast rate. They're able to tweak things because, honestly, the rate at which trends are going at this point in time, I, I have never seen the trend cycle be this accelerated. I mean, it's it's uh, particularly on social media platforms like uh, Instagram and TikTok. One of the most popular discussion topics is influencers declaring which trends are now out of style or chiyugi is the term that any Gen Z listeners or TikTok listeners will be familiar with. So, you know, trends that normally would take, say, three to five months to go through their lifespan and that's micro trends that we're talking about the kind of the smallest of the small trends they they can be over and done with in in a matter of weeks Xi'an are are definitely responsible for the acceleration of trends as we've been talking about but I also think that it has to be recognized that there was already quite a ravenous consumer appetite before they really started their rapid ascents so I, I'm wondering if you can see in the types of uh, goods that are being produced, in, in the styles and the forms, can you see a sense that this has been driven by machine learning, that, that, these, the, that these kind of forms have an algorithmic root or seed? It's so interesting to see that, you know, <laughs> while simultaneously there is, uh, I would say, never been a fast fashion retailer that has been, even relative to the likes of Zara, producing this volume of garments on a daily basis and, and this many sort of design concepts, you can absolutely see within the clothes themselves that they are oftentimes a pale machine-made imitation of more of design concepts that were originally more sort of handcrafted, which is which is a really bizarre thing. But again, this is just the nature of them harvesting data of what people are liking. And it's been seen that, you know, particularly in the earliest stages of the pandemic, there was a rise on TikTok and Instagram of the um, core trends, as they're called. So the cottage core trend, which um, has, has been very sort of centered around handcrafted pieces, ironically around slower fashion, around purchasing secondhand fashion. But there's a certain, um, I suppose, romantic, um, you know, wearing a sundress, walking through a field of flowers aesthetic that Cottagecore was centred around. And um, it, so it's been very interesting to see Xi'an create machine-made iterations of that, of, a, of an aesthetic that is so focused on the handcrafted. To see a, to see a fast fashion retailer capitalise on that is... Uh, is a bit morally dubious but but yes you can see the machine made aspects there's there's nothing in essence wrong with that but yes i do find it a bizarre development when i see xian uh, create these machine made uh, imitations of of originally handmade designs what we're talking about what xian does is harvest what individual people are creating not not just designers but i wonder to what extent will people become tired of that approach well maybe not the consumers doing these holes but i think in in the broader societal sense people are already tiring of this approach i mean it, it really is little wonder that they've come under increasing fire for you know through their data harvesting they're also harvesting the original concepts of a lot of independent designers and and unfortunately a lot of independent designers who ironically 
um, hone in on again the handcrafted sustainable aspect, the 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 level of cultural appropriation faux pas that that Xi'an has uh, sort of fallen into. They, they came out with with an apology, I believe it was in summer 2020, after a series of these faux pas, one of which being, if I'm not mistaken, they utilised the motifs on Muslim prayer mats as decorative rugs. They conceived pendant necklaces in the shape of swastikas. And this is all AI, AI-generated designs. And obviously this courted a lot of, a lot of controversy online and, and rightly so and uh, maybe the issue with this algorithmic fashion also is that they're taking concepts that uh, really no longer have any ties to their original context they're literally forms of you know kind of non-sentient emotionless data I was talking there to Amelia O'Mahony Brady about Sheehan. It's in the App Store. And finally, this time, The Art of the Pasticcio. Irish National Opera's latest production, Bajazette, surfs the Vivaldi wave, bringing to life one of the composer's mixtape operas, built not just with his own music, but also dropping arias from his Neapolitan rivals. Peter Whelan, who's conducting this Bajazette from the harpsichord, spoke to Culture File before some masked rehearsals. So amazing, this renaissance of, of Vivaldi's music, especially since Cecilia Bartoli, she made a few um, CDs, I guess, in the 90s. They just show this incredible breadth of Vivaldi's music that's maybe not so familiar to most audiences who are familiar with the, the Four Seasons. But in these operas, he's writing for the voice like he would a violin. It's, it's the most extraordinary, dazzling, no place to breathe, tightrope walk, circus act of, of semi-quaver coloratura from so many of the singers. It's, it's an incredible thing to do. fascinating to think of Vivaldi sitting down and composing and he wasn't a keyboard player as far as we know and a lot of his music doesn't look like it's written from a keyboard idiom but rather you could imagine him composing with his violin very often he's absolutely punishing to the singers like using a, a low G which is the lowest note in the violin which he could easily do at home and then flying up onto the E string it's absolutely unforgiving music Bajazette's a really interesting opera in that it's a, it's a pastiche, so it's, it's mostly composed by Vivaldi, but other people uh, uh, threw their hand in too and, and, and composed some arias, and actually it's probably Vivaldi who assembled this. A pastiche like this was like super popular at the time. It was a cheaper way to make opera, which, as you say, was in decline in a, in a lot of respects. So this was a quick way of putting... Um, Lots of pieces together, but actually, it's 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 uh, sometimes they're underestimated uh, pastiches. I think because um, Vivaldi really had time to choose the best arias from many different composers to best express the the story of Bajazet. Interestingly, he gave the goodies, the good characters, uh, music that he composed, and the baddies are mostly the Neapolitan composers who, who get to do them too. <laughs> Which was to sort of underline what had been happening in the world of opera at the time. 
That's true. There was this uh, yeah big divide about who who what kind of opera you, you liked. I, I guess I'm trying to think of an analogy for you know whatever the competition for iPhones is. Is it Samsung? I, I, anyway, iPhones have definitely won. It's Apple all the way. But at the time, there was a yeah, big competition from which side of Italy you liked your your opera from. I guess um, Vivaldi's maybe more primary colours, uh, more heart on sleeve. The the uh, emotion seems more, to me at least, uh, more genuine. The Neapolitan style is uh, a little bit more gallant. Uh, um, I think it's just how you should behave in in public. So it's very very stylish, but maybe it's it's not the kind of a you know clothes that you'd like to wear every day like um it's like it's like i guess the neapolitan style is super high heels and 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 gucci and prado whereas uh vivaldi's a little bit more kind of homeware from duns there there is a sort of modern day equivalent of the pastiche which is the jukebox musical the we will rock you and the jersey boys exactly i suppose it does have a long uh uh yeah heritage um and i don't see why it should be a problem particularly i think nowadays we, we we can tend to be a little bit snobby about mixing and matching but in the 18th century these were the most popular um productions and as you say they it goes to this this very day your your favorite playlist basically So this all is this tour that you're about to undergo is happening under very strange circumstances. The two of us are standing here with our masks on. I, I, this, this puts a particular strain. I mean, there's enough strain trying to mount an opera and then tour it. Well, we've all had to do so much adjusting, and 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 this project falling when it does is absolutely on an on a knife edge. Um, you know, at any moment we could be scuppered by so many things. Opera, of course, is a hugely complicated art form because not only do you have the singers, the stage technicians, the stage managers, the lighting crew, the costumes, the orchestra, but also there's those things you might not even begin to think about, like the hotels we have to stay in, the people who open um, theatres, uh, bus drivers, any of those could go ill at the moment and we, our plans have to, to start again. So we're just, I, I think, is it, is it a, a Alcoholics Anonymous? We're taking it one day at a time and we're trying not to get um, bombarded with too much because uh, the, the, the possibilities are endless of what, what can happen. But the bottom line is there's so much goodwill for, for this to happen. All of the Irish um, venues and audiences seem to be so flexible. Of course, it's a huge change this month because everything has to be closed by 8pm. So many of our shows, or all of them in fact, have become matinees. And it just remains to be seen how it progresses. Anything can happen, anything can change. At the end of this, we're planning to go to the Royal Opera House to do the final um, few shows of the performance. And as things stand at this particular juncture in time, that seems like the easiest part I was thinking about the Premier League and the amount of money that's flowing around there, and they can't seem to hold a game. You know, <laughs> like they can't keep it out of the club. It it must be just terrifying. Well, especially at the moment, it seems to be everywhere. Uh, this this particular wave um, is the first one, at least in Ireland, where you you have family members 
um, lots of school kids, you know, all over social media, everybody's showing their positive antigen test results. So far here, we've, we've done pretty well. There's been a few casualties, but nobody's particularly ill and is finding ways to, to get back, you know, into, into the rehearsal thing. But it, as I say, it remains to be seen. Hopefully not much else will change, but we'll see maybe by the time this comes out what, what's happened. <laughs> I hate talking about it. It feels like I'm, I'm bringing, casting bad luck down or something. No, uh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I think we, we are all every man for himself at this particular moment. Anything can happen. It's, it's nobody's fault. Um, and it's, it's hopefully about to become endemic. And this is only the beginning of it. I, I do, even though uh, things have seemed so dark at the moment, I do feel that it's hopefully will lift in the next few months and we'll have a different take on the whole thing. Peter Whelan and members of the Irish Baroque Orchestra there. And the premiere of Irish National Opera's Bajazette will now be on Tuesday at 5pm in Solstice Arts Centre, Navan, passing by Cork, Limerick, Galway, Maynooth and Dunleary before February dates at the Royal Opera House in London. And that brings to a close this podcast-only edition of the Culture File Weekly. Don't forget to have a listen to this month's Culture File debate on not knowing... You never know what you'll find out. Bye now.